Well, this week I have been checking out the Oscar-winning documentary, Free Solo. It's the story of Alex Honnold, who climbed up Al Capitan, a granite mountain 3,200 feet high in the air at Yosemite Park, with no ropes. This mountain is taller than two Empire State Buildings stacked on top of each other. He did this in four hours. Oftentimes, his handholds were only the thickness of two quarters stacked together. And his footholds, he really didn't have footholds. Often, it was just the pressure of his foot pushing against the rock, and that was enough to propel him up. Here's a couple of my favorite pictures from uh, the, the film and his climb. Here he's hanging, uh, holding on by a couple fingers, 2,000 feet up in the air. Uh, here's another one, just to give you a picture of the scope and the amazing epic reality of this free solo climb. My name is Dave. I get to be the pastor at Grace Ann Arbor West, which is the third and newest location of Grace and Ann Arbor West. Love you guys. Glad that I'm able to speak to you this morning and look forward to seeing you next week. I want to give a special note to my wife and my kids and my staff and my mom, who's probably watching down in Florida. I will never climb El Capitan free solo. I will never do that. I'm kind of working on free soloing my stairs most of the time at home. <laughs> but it's inspiring, right, to hear about what he did, even the name Free Solo. For many of us, this sums up our kind of aspiration and goal in life, our goal as, as a Christian and following Jesus, uh, to, to climb up that mountain of following Jesus with, with no ropes and to grow in maturity in Christ. And one day as we do that, we'll be able to free solo up that mountain. It's just so beautiful and captivating. And, and it's so wrong. It's so inaccurate, not only for the movie, but, but also in following Jesus. So yes, Alex did all that climbing himself. And I have to tell you, when I watched Free Solo, my stomach was in a knot the entire time because I thought, what if he fell? And I knew that he made it to the top. I've actually seen him on TV and doing TED Talks since he made it to the top, and I was still scared by it, but it was amazing. And when I heard him talk about the experience, it was amazing to find out that he had a lot of help. So at one point, he and a buddy climbed up and they had to remove a bunch of small rocks and boulders, carry them down in their backpacks so they didn't fall on other climbers so that he could get through that uh, part of the climb better. He also, in the, in the uh, movie, you see all of the work that the camera crew did to make it. All the camera uh, holders and operators are all professional climbers who are also photographers. And they were up there and Every part of his climb, he actually practiced roped up. He knew every move. He had memorized every single one of those moves. And, and he actually talks about it in terms of choreography, almost like a dance. And every camera shot was talked through and, and figured out. And we know life isn't like that, right? Not so meticulously choreographed. Things don't unfold in that way. And deeper still, God doesn't actually call us to a free solo life. Christianity is not a go-it-alone worldview. We're in our last message today on the lies we believe and the truth that sets us free. And today's lie is the lie of isolation. It's the lie, I don't need other people. 
And it is directly counter to the truth of Scripture that we are called into community. The truth is that we in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are designed or made for togetherness. And so it's no surprise that isolation causes problems. Uh, one University of Chicago social neuroscientist has a great talk, a TED talk, called The Lethality of Loneliness. And he talks about research that he did with brain scanning technology and talks about the problems that come with isolation. When you are isolated, you have less of an ability to empathize with others. You have increased depression. You have increased cortisol levels, which is the hormone that causes stress and anxiety. You have a lower life expectancy. Many studies have shown that you have an up to 33% lower life expectancy if you live in isolation. One Harvard study that followed 7,000 people over nine years discovered that people with bad health habits, that is poor eating, obesity, and other bad uh, health situations, but strong social ties actually lived longer than people who had good health habits but were isolated. So one pastor commenting on this uh, says this. I'll paraphrase what he says. He says, it's better to eat quarter pounders with friends than eat salad alone. Back in the 1950s, when they could do studies on human subjects, like the one I'm about to describe, uh, they took a group of volunteer grad students, and they agreed to be put into small chambers and deprived of all uh, stimulation. They wore earplugs. Uh, the chambers just had a bed in it. They were painted white. They actually wore gloves on their hands so they couldn't uh, experience touch at all. And the experiment was supposed to run six weeks to see what happened. And they actually shut it down after seven days because every one of those students they discovered had lost the ability to think clearly about anything for any length of time, and several of them were suffering from severe hallucinations. So grad students, as we head towards the end of the semester, think about that a little bit as you head towards your study carol or your research cubicle. One social commentary, uh, commenta commentator said, every terrorist regime in the world uses isolation to break people's spirits. And so it's no wonder that scripture treats isolation and separation as a symbol and sign and result of the work of sin. Sin, the DNA in us that causes us to go counter God's direction, separates us and isolates us from God and his people. So whether you're looking at the first half of the Bible or the second half of the Bible, you can see that the effect of sin is to cause us to be separated from God, alienated from God and ourselves, strangers and isolated from God and his people. But what you discover is that God's great work through Jesus Christ is actually to unite us with himself and his people and his mission. And so you see, as you read through the second half of the Bible, uh, things like those who were far away because of sin have been brought near. Those who were separated because of sin have been joined together. Those who, because of sin, were foreigners to God and his kingdom have now become fellow citizens through Christ in heaven. 
So today we're going to read one of those great passages that pictures for us Christian community. And I'm actually going to invite you uh, at all of our locations to stand and read Romans 12, 3 to 8 together with me. So why don't you go ahead and stand up and we'll read together. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Now, if you read this and you liked it and you believe it, of course you agree with that great 17th century poem by John Donne that starts out with this phrase, no man is an island. You know the lie of isolation, I don't need other people, is a lie that leads to bad places. You just heard me talk about that. But if you're like me, you still kind of hold on to that dream of the free solo life. And you still buy some versions of that lie. One of the versions of the lie of isolation goes like this. I don't need help. I don't need help. Like when my wife sends me to the grocery store to, to get, and I can't remember whether I'm supposed to get a particular spice or, or a cheesecloth, I don't know. But I went to the grocery store and I walked around and it was not there. And I came home and I said to my wife, they don't have that. And she said, did you ask for help? And I thought, boy, I am so insulted. You have insulted my manhood. I don't need to ask for help. I'm perfectly capable of walking around and seeing what's there. Of course, a little bit later, she went back to the store, and sure enough, she found it. And she said, yeah, I just asked them where it was. I don't want that kind of help. I don't want to ask direction. I don't need other people to tell me things. I'm living the free solo life. No ropes. I'm on my own. I don't need help. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. It's the lie of busyness. It's the lie of career ambitions. It's the lie that says, well, when I have time or money or my program is completed or I'm at the next step in my career, then, then I'll connect with my friends or my family or my wife or my kids or my church. This is why grad school and career ladder climbing are the graveyards of marriages and parenting. This is why in those settings, loneliness is pervasive, addictions rise. It's because climbing free solo is dangerous, and when we fall, it hurts. Romans 12, 3 says to us, if we think that, 
Think of yourself with sober judgment. Think of yourself with sober, take an honest evaluation of who you really are. Because sometimes we believe that lie of isolation because we actually underestimate our need for interdependence. We underestimate our need for interdependence. So a few weeks ago, we were in our community group and we were having a great discussion about the Bible and what God was saying. And I kind of glanced over to my right and this is what I saw. This is Hadley. She's so cute. She's a newborn, the daughter of our community group leaders. I, I was so distracted. I could not take my eyes off of her. I got up, stood with my back to everybody, and started taking pictures. She's not even my kid, and I took like 20 pictures of her. She's so cute. See, there's deep science at work here, though, because infants have to have parental and adult engagement to survive. And so they have ways to cue us with that. They look so cute. And parents respond to those cues. It's, it's necessary for like the collective survival of our species. And if you've had young kids, you know that feeling of, boy, it's a good thing you're so cute. Because this is so hard, right? It's difficult. This is why when my children were little and they were little babies and they cried, it was like the roar of a freight train in my ears and everyone else was like, oh, that's so cute. Your little baby's cry is so cute. And I was like, I, I got to do something. You know this feeling if you're a parent. It's necessary for us because we're social creatures. We're actually designed biologically to interact, for, interact with and care for each other. This is why a social scientist says the key to reaching adulthood is not becoming autonomous and solitary. It's to become the one on whom others can depend. Whether we know it or not, our brain and our biology have been shaped to favor this outcome. We are designed to be interdependent. And you can see that people have studied the effect of deep Christian community on the people involved. If you're involved deeply in Christian community, generally speaking, you have lower blood pressure, a stronger immune system, a higher level of happiness and well-being, less substance abuse, longer life. The list goes on and on and on. Now, I know. I know that some of you out there are looking at that and thinking, yeah, that sounds really nice, but I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm only here for a year or two or whatever my program is or this part of my job, and, and then I'm out and I gotta stay focused. You're dealing with what I have affectionately termed the exit sign effect. It's like if I take you to a great cafe and I say, boy, they have the best latte here you've ever tasted. They have chocolates that will blow your mind and there's a whole room full of people that you will just really love talking to and hey, here's an empty chair right at this table with this other folk. And you might be in there, and if you have the exit sign effect, all you're seeing is the exit sign and the door, and you're plotting your route to get out. And, and this is hard. Sometimes we believe the lie of estimation, or the lie of, of, of isolation, because we overestimate our ability to plan our lives. We overestimate our capacity to plan our lives. The free solo life was all about meticulously planning and choreographing every move up the mountain, and it just doesn't include time for others. 
And sometimes we think that we've just got to have that focus because we've got to absolutely maximize and plan out our productivity. And so for us, communities actually, it's, it's optional. Even though everyone else needs it and all those negative effects will happen to people in isolation and all those positive benefits are there, my time, my schedule, what I'm doing is special and I can't afford it. I just, I can survive without all of that. That conversation often reminds me of conversations I had uh, with my high school kids uh, about their phones at night where they would have their phone right by their bed and they would tweet and put Facebook posts up at all hours of the night. And I'd talk to them and I'd say, Dad, I, I'm young. I don't need that kind of sleep. I, I know you think I do, but that's just not the way it is. I, I can deal with this. It's not an issue. It's interesting. Uh, someone correlated late-night tweets of over 100 NBA players with the game stats from their game the next day. And then they compared that to game stats when they weren't tweeting late at night. This is all publicly available information. And, and what they discovered is that games that were played the day after late night tweets, uh, their performance went down, particularly their shooting percentages. They just didn't get the ball in the basket as much. If you don't play basketball, what you need to know about this picture is that ball is not going into that basket. It's about to clang off the rim, just like it did last night in the second half for the Michigan Wolverines. It's not going in. And, and, and the message here is that even NBA athletes who are at the apex focus of their performance can't escape basic human needs. And in the same way, you and I, even if you might be at the apex of focus in your process or career or study or life or whatever you're doing, you can't escape your need for Christian community to live at your best. Here's some truth. People who are deeply engaged in Christian community have higher levels of positive work habits, have higher levels of self-control, and, and this blew my mind. They, generally speaking, have a 10% higher household income level than people who aren't. I know some of you who are into statistics are like, oh, that's just a correlation. That's not causality. I know. I get it. But here's what I found out. An MIT economist studied those studies, and he said, yeah, actually, it is causal. There's causality there. Some of you still are saying, yeah, I get all that, but, but I can see the exit sign, and I know that not much can really happen in a year or two anyway, and I just got to tell you, you'd be surprised what can happen in a year. Talk to any of these parents with young, newborn kids about what was happening a year ago. Stuff changes in a year. This Sunday marks 53 weeks of my employment with Grace Ann Arbor as a pastor. Do you know when I started, Grace West existed as a vision or an idea, but we didn't have any other staff. We didn't have any ministry teams. We didn't have any volunteer leaders. We didn't have a launch team. We had done no remodeling in our building. We had done no publicity or outreach or anything like that. And now today, a, a year later, we've got staff, we've got ministry teams, we've got volunteers, we've got lives being changed. We've got a whole church over there, love you guys, listening to us. And it didn't even take a whole year. Six months ago, less than six months ago, my wife and I joined our community group. Do you know in six months' time, we've talked about life and death, 
we've laughed, some of us have cried, we've shared together. It's been pretty deep and powerful and it's only been like five months. A lot can happen in a short amount of time. Another word for thinking that we know how life will unfold over the next six months or year for thinking that we can meticulously plan out the unfolding of our schedule and, and that precludes connecting with others deeply, for thinking that maybe we don't need help or we don't have time for others. Another word for that is the word pride. The lie of not needing help, the lie of self-sufficiency, the lie of busyness is really a lie of pride. It's the lie that says, I can lead a free solo life. I don't need ropes because I won't slip or fall and, and I've got a mountain to climb up right now all by myself. C.S. Lewis says about pride, a proud man is always looking down on things and people and, of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see some, something that is above you. Above us is our creator, a creator who designed us for community and togetherness. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Well, one version of the lie of isolation is, I, I don't want help or I don't need help. Another version is, I can't be helped. I can't be helped. This is the lie of anger, the lie of hurt, the lie of pain, the lie of embarrassment. It's the lie that comes from the reality that the free solo life might sound nice, but I've tried, and I've tried going with no ropes, and, and I fell, and, and, and it hurts. This is the lie that we say when we've been hurt by others, when we're angry, when we feel embarrassed, when life isn't going as planned, when we experience failure at work or failure in marriage or failure in the bedroom or failure in parenting, when we sense that we're never enough, that we've fallen too hard, that we're too broken, when we start to believe that lie. It's really a lie of shame. It's the lie that says, I can't connect with others because I'm too unworthy. I'm too angry. I'm too hurt. Now you, you know what this looks like if you have a dog and you've had to, to go to the vet. Just as a kind of funny illustration, it's the cone of shame, right? Like Doug had to wear in up. I, I don't like that cone. Like he just kind of, you can tell. He's, he's just showing. And you've seen it if you have a dog. Your dogs know, oh man, I'm wearing the cone of shame. I can't really relate to you today. It's less funny when you feel like you have the cone of shame. Like when you're driving to church and you have a fight with your husband or your wife or your kids and you just can't get out of the car because you're just too embarrassed about what happened. I know that feeling. Or, or that feeling that women and couples experience when they have a miscarriage. I, I, I know that feeling. I remember Deb's uh, first miscarriage. We had just told everybody that, that we were having a baby and we had just moved to a new town to start a new ministry, and we went on vacation, and she had the miscarriage while we were on vacation on the other side of the country. And we came home, and we didn't know anybody, and we didn't have a church, and we were really embarrassed that we had told everybody that we were having a baby, and we were also kind of ashamed. We were like 23, 24 years old, and we were kind of afraid. We hardly knew what was going on. Shame is powerful. Brene Brown writes this about what shame feels like. Shame is my past. Shame is my, D, my DUI. 
losing my job, infertility, internet porn, hearing my parents fight, not sitting at the cool table. Some of you remember that feeling from middle school. I remember it. The cool kids were all at the other table, and boy, I, I wasn't worthy. I didn't quite cut it. And some of us carry that feeling of shame right on through the rest of our lives. If the lie of shame is your lie, if you bought into it, Romans 12, 4 and 5 are for you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This lifts up every one of us and what we bring and invites us into belonging and indicates that there's a need for each person in Jesus' mission. But I know some of you, even hearing that, you're struggling, like I have in the past, with isolation from the lie of shame because you, ask, you actually do what I did, is that we underestimate capacity for compassion. We underestimate other people's capacity for compassion. So after my wife and I got back to that new town where we didn't know anybody and didn't have a church, I went to visit a church with Deb on a Sunday morning, and this church was a church out in the country. It was a small church. It literally was carved into a space uh, around a cornfield, and, and it was all farmers in the church, and we heard it was a good church, and we just wanted to kind of go and, and visit there, and, and we walked in, and I started telling the pastor about what I was doing there in town, and I kind of sort of casually mentioned that my wife and I had that Deb had just had a miscarriage and he just kind of gently stopped the conversation can, and said, can you, can you just hold on for a minute? And he, he kind of left the room and he, and he went and he got a few of his elders and, and these were farmers and they were kind of burly guys and they came in and he said, T tell us what happened. And, and we told the story, kind of embarrassed and he said, okay, well, let us pray for you. And they started praying and, uh, the, you know, I, I didn't know if they'd get anything of what we were talking about. And they prayed the sweetest, kindest prayer for us. And, and when we were done praying, they, they all had tears in their eyes. I don't remember what they prayed. What I remembered is that they cared. And what's important for you to hear this morning is that people might not always get every single thing that you've experienced, but in the community of the people of God, there is great compassion. Great compassion. Uh, Brene Brown says this, shame derives its power from being unspeakable. It cannot survive empathy or compassion. And I have to tell you, from that day onward, uh, I began to feel that shame and embarrassment and fear just sort of m move away. In fact, we discovered after that, as we talked a little more about our story, that 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. And we discovered there were all kinds of folks who just kind of put their arms around us and cared for us, sometimes sat with us in silence and understood, and understood. And even though that's true, some of us still, and I know you might be thinking that some of us believe that lie of isolation, that lie of shame, because we actually overestimate the harm that will come from sharing either to us or to other people from hearing, I can't be helped because it'll hurt me too much to say, and it'll hurt you too much, you won't be able to handle it or process it. But you need to know and hear and understand from me right now today that, that we need to hear about your pain. We need to hear your story. So in preparing uh, to talk about this, I sent my brother a note. My, my brother's a neurologist. He, he works at Duke, and, and he's actually the chief of the headache division at Duke. He deals with pain all day. 
And I said, tell, tell me a little bit about pain. And he, and he said, you know, pain has a purpose. Its purpose is to protect. Its purpose is to limit damage. Its purpose is to tell us about disease. Its purpose is to change our behavior, to encourage us to take a different action. You know, in the body of Christ, your pain informs us of wrongs experienced and hurt that is perceived and signals us to take action, to extend mercy. When you tell your story, some things happen that are very interesting. We get a chance to extend care and connect with you. You actually get a chance to receive healing and you then begin to get opportunities to extend that care to other people. Instead of a no ropes, free solo approach to shame, your vulnerability actually will help someone else take hold of a rope like a lifeline and get their next step in the journey going. So in Christ, we though many form one body and each belongs to all the others. So where are we headed with this this morning? Here's where we're headed. Whether we believe in the lie of pride, which is I don't need help, or the lie of shame, which is I can't be helped, what we end up doing is surrendering our relationships to isolation. That is, we're putting schedules and career plans or shame or hurt or busyness over and above marriage and parenting and friendship and church community. And when we do that, we become lonely and disconnected and discouraged and despairing. We become isolated. But the truth that sets us free is this. Instead of surrendering relationships to the isolating lies of pride and shame, we're called to surrender ourselves to the connective truth of community in the body of Christ. That's why our passage today ends with such a strong call to action. That's why it says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's giving, then give. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I hope you see here the emphasis on action, on each person taking an action step. Many times this passage is used as a way of trying to figure out which gift you have, but it's really less of a spiritual personality quiz and more of a call to an action step in your posture towards other people. And ironically, this surrender is not passive. It's taking a step under Jesus Christ's leadership. He's the head of the body. He's the Lord of the mission. And he has plans for each and every one of us that he wants us to walk into. So over the last few weeks, I've been talking to some people who experienced isolation and struggled with it, but then moved into relationships in our community. And I I asked them, well, how did that happen? And every one of them said basically this common set of things. First, they realized that they were alone and disconnected and dissatisfied with life and they felt isolated and they had a growing sense inside of them that this way of living wasn't working for them. They weren't happy, but there was a barrier separating them from what they wanted in relationship with others. At the same time, that they desired, they saw all the obvious benefits of Christian community, and they had a growing sense that they really wanted this more than the isolation they were experiencing. And at some point, 
They just stepped across that barrier. They took a bold or courageous or daring step and walked across. So I talked to one person who said, yeah, we were really disconnected and we realized, you know, we just, we just got to try this community group. I talked to another person who was in a community group, but kind of just only went every once in a while. And he said, you know, what I did is I just actually said to my community group, meet at my apartment because then I'm going to have to be there. I talked to one person, one woman, who, who finally reached out to a woman in her community group because she just wanted to share her whole story with someone. Uh, and maybe for you, you you're, you're going to have what I, what I would call a throw a cup of coffee on the table moment. I, I saw this happen live last week. I was in, in a, a, a meeting with a few guys. We were sharing prayer requests and having coffee. And, and at one point, it came around for one guy to share. And he, he just threw his cup of coffee on the table, almost spilled, and he said, okay, I'm just going to put this out there and share it. And then he shared just this very tender and, and vulnerable prayer request, super, like way more personal than I expected in that setting because he knew we needed prayer. And, and, and boy, did we pray for him. And boy, did that connect us together. At some point, all of those folks knew what they didn't want, knew what they hoped for, and took a bold and courageous step. So as we wrap up the Lies We Believe series, I want to call you to an action step. Over the next six weeks, I want to call you, call us, to take one new connection step with the body of Christ at Grace over the next six weeks. You know, a lot of churches will give you this message of, hey, uh, you're too busy, but we're going to replace your busyness with our own busyness because our busyness is better than yours. And I'm not really saying that. What I'm saying is stop surrendering to isolation Walk into one step of connection. Show your career plans or your busyness or your shame or your hurt or your anger that they no longer have the power to isolate you and test God's truth that it will set you free. So join a community group. Even if you're just going to be in town for like another six weeks, get in a group. You can do that right today in the lobby. Or if you're in a group, maybe you need to have a kind of throw the coffee cup on the table moment and just put some things out there for people. Tell them what's really going on. Maybe for you it's join a serving team with Grace Kids or with a Connections team or with Tech or Worship. Or maybe you just need to have a conversation in the lobby today after church or, or next week or over a cup of coffee. And then when you do that, ask God to give you one good reason, one good reason to keep doing that action step after Easter. Because the truth is this. In Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the other. Let me pray for us. God, this morning, uh, so many of us uh, feel uh, some version of the lie of desperation. We don't want help. We don't think we can be helped. We may have anger or bitterness or hurt or shame or pride. And somehow we excuse ourselves from connecting with others as if we don't need that. But God, we know not only do we need that, you want that for us. And so God, send your spirit into us. Give us courage or boldness or humility or whatever it takes to take that next step. In Jesus' name. Amen.